Chapter 24, Part 2 I was soon dressed, and when I heard Mr. Rochester quit Mrs. Fairfax's parlor, I hurried down to it. The old lady had been reading her morning portion of scripture, the lesson for the day. Her Bible lay open before her, and her spectacles were upon it. Her occupation, suspended by Mr. Rochester's announcement, seemed now forgotten. Her eyes, fixed on the blank wall opposite, expressed the surprise of a quiet mind, stirred by unwanted tidings. Seeing me, she roused herself. She made a sort of effort to smile, and framed a few words of congratulation. But the smile expired, and the sentence was abandoned, unfinished. She put up her spectacles, shut the Bible, and pushed her chair back from the table. "'I feel so astonished,' she began. "'I hardly know what to say to you, Miss Eyre. "'I have surely not been dreaming, have I? "'Sometimes I half fall asleep when I am sitting alone "'and fancy things that have never happened. "'It has seemed to me more than once when I have been in a doze "'that my dear husband, who died fifteen years since, "'has come in and sat down beside me, "'and that I have even heard him call me by my name, "'Alice, as he used to do. "'Now, can you tell me whether it is actually true "'that Mr. Rochester has asked you to marry him? "'Don't laugh at me, but I really thought "'he came in here five minutes ago "'and said that in a month you would be his wife.' "'He has said the same thing to me,' I replied. "'He has. Do you believe him? Have you accepted him?' "'Yes.' She looked at me, bewildered. I could never have thought it. He is a proud man. All the Rochesters were proud. And his father, at least, liked money. He, too, has always been called careful. He means to marry you. He tells me so. She surveyed my whole person. In her eyes I read that they had there found no charm powerful enough to solve the enigma. It passes me, she continued, "'but no doubt it is true since you say so. "'How will it answer? I cannot tell. "'I really don't know. "'Equality of position and fortune "'is often advisable in such cases, "'and there are twenty years of difference in your ages. "'He might almost be your father.' "'No, indeed, Mrs. Fairfax,' exclaimed I, nettled. "'He is nothing like my father. "'No one who saw us together would suppose it for an instant.' Mr. Rochester looks as young and is as young as some men at five and twenty. Is it really for love he is going to marry you? she asked. I was so hurt by her coldness and skepticism that the tears rose to my eyes. I am sorry to grieve you, pursued the widow, but you are so young and so little acquainted with men. I wish to put you on your guard. It is an old saying that all is not gold that glitters, and in this case I do fear there will be something found to be different to what either you or I expect. Why? Am I a monster? I said. Is it impossible that Mr. Rochester should have a sincere affection for me? No, you are very well and much improved of late, and Mr. Rochester, I dare say, is fond of you. I've always noticed that you are a sort of pet of his. There are times when, for your sake... I have been a little uneasy at his marked preference, and have wished to put you on your guard, but I did not like to suggest even the possibility of wrong. I knew such an idea would shock, 
perhaps offend you, and you were so discreet and so thoroughly modest and sensible, I hoped you might be trusted to protect yourself. Last night I cannot tell you what I suffered when I sought all over the house and could find you nowhere, nor the master either, and then at twelve o'clock saw you come in with him. Well, never mind that now, I interrupted impatiently. It is enough that all was right. I hope all will be right in the end, she said, but believe me, you cannot be too careful. Try and keep Mr. Rochester at a distance. Distrust yourself as well as him. Gentlemen in his station are not accustomed to marry their governesses. I was growing truly irritated. Happily, Adele ran in. Let me go. Let me go to Millcote, too, she cried. Mr. Rochester won't, though there is so much room in the new carriage. Beg him to let me go, mademoiselle. That I will, Adele, and I hastened away with her, glad to quit my gloomy monitress. The carriage was ready. They were bringing it round to the front, and my master was pacing the pavement, Pilot following him backwards and forwards. "'Adele may accompany us, may she not, sir?' "'I told her no. I'll have no brats. I'll only have you. "'Do let her go, Mr. Rochester, if you please. It would be better. "'Not it. She will be a restraint.' "'He was quite peremptory, both in look and voice. "'The chill of Mrs. Fairfax's warnings and the damp of her doubts were upon me. "'Something of unsubstantiality and uncertainty had beset my hopes.' I half lost the sense of power over him. I was about mechanically to obey him without further remonstrance, but as he helped me into the carriage, he looked at my face. "'What is the matter?' he asked. "'All the sunshine is gone. Do you really wish the bairn to go? Will it annoy you if she is left behind?' "'I would far rather she went, sir. "'Then off for your bonnet and back like a flash of lightning,' cried he to Adele. She obeyed him with what speed she might. After all, a single morning's interruption will not matter much, said he, when I mean shortly to claim you, your thoughts, conversation, and company for life. Adele, when lifted in, commenced kissing me by way of expressing her gratitude for my intercession. She was instantly stowed away into a corner on the other side of him. She then peeped round to where I sat, so stern a neighbor was too restrictive to him. In his present fractious mood, she dared whisper no observations, nor ask of him any information. "'Let her come to me,' I entreated. "'She will perhaps trouble you, sir. There is plenty of room on this side.' He handed her over, as if she had been a lapdog. "'I'll send her to school yet,' he said. But now he was smiling." Adele heard him, and asked if she was to go to school, sans mademoiselle. "'Yes,' he replied, "'absolutely, sans mademoiselle, "'for I am to take mademoiselle to the moon, "'and there I shall seek a cave "'in one of the white valleys among the volcano tops, "'and mademoiselle shall live with me there, and only me. "'She will have nothing to eat. "'You will starve her,' observed Adele. "'I shall gather manna for her morning and night. "'The plains and hillsides in the moon "'are bleached with manna, Adele. "'She will want to warm herself,' "'What will she do for a fire?' "'Fire rises out of the lunar mountains. "'When she is cold, I'll carry her up to a peak "'and lay her down on the edge of a crater. "'And her clothes, they will wear out. "'How can she get new ones?' "'Mr. Rochester professed to be puzzled. 
"'Hm,' said he. "'What would you do, Adele? "'Cudgel your brains for an expedient. "'How would a white or pink cloud answer for a gown, do you think? "'And one could cut a pretty enough scarf out of a rainbow.' "'She is far better as she is,' concluded Adele, "'after musing some time. "'Besides, she would get tired of living with only you in the moon. "'If I were Mademoiselle, I would never consent to go with you. "'She has consented. "'She has pledged her word.' "'But you can't get her there. "'There is no road to the moon. "'It is all air, and neither you nor she can fly. "'Adele, look at that field. "'We were now outside Thornfield Gates "'and bowling lightly along the smooth road to Millcote, "'where the dust was well laid by the thunderstorm, "'and where the low hedges and lofty timber trees "'on each side glistened green and rain refreshed.' "'In that field, Adele, I was walking late one evening, about a fortnight since. "'The evening of the day you helped me to make hay in the orchard meadows. "'And, as I was tired with raking, I sat down to rest me on a stile. "'And there I took out a little book and a pencil, "'and began to write about a misfortune that befell me long ago, "'and a wish I had for happy days to come. "'I was writing away very fast.' "'though daylight was fading from the leaf, "'when something came up the path and stopped two yards off me. "'I looked at it. "'It was a little thing with a veil of gossamer on its head. "'I beckoned it to come near me. "'It stood soon at my knee. "'I never spoke to it, and it never spoke to me, in words. "'But I read its eyes, and it read mine, "'and our speechless colloquy was to this effect.' "'It was a fairy, and come from Elfland,' it said, "'and its errand was to make me happy. "'I must go with it out of the common world "'to a lonely place, such as the moon, for instance, "'and it nodded its head towards her horn, "'rising over Hay Hill. "'It told me the alabaster cave and silver vale "'where we might live. "'I said I should like to go, "'but reminded it, as you did me, "'that I had no wings to fly.' "'Oh,' returned the fairy, "'that does not signify. "'Here is a talisman will remove all difficulties.' "'And she held out a pretty gold ring. "'Put it,' she said, "'on your fourth finger of my left hand, "'and I am yours, and you are mine, "'and we shall leave earth "'and make our own heaven yonder.' "'She nodded again at the moon. "'The ring, Adele, is in my breeches pocket, "'under the disguise of a sovereign, "'but I mean soon to change it to a ring again.' "'But what has Mademoiselle to do with it? "'I don't care for the fairy. "'You said it was Mademoiselle you would take to the moon.' "'Mademoiselle is a fairy,' he said, whispering mysteriously. "'Whereupon I told her not to mind his badinage, "'and she, on her part, evinced a fund of genuine French scepticism. "'She was sure they would never appear to him "'nor ever give him rings or offer to live with him in the moon. "'The hour spent at Millcote was a somewhat harassing one to me.' "'Mr. Rochester obliged me to go to a certain silk warehouse. "'There I was ordered to choose half a dozen dresses. "'I hated the business. I begged leave to defer it. "'No, it should be gone through with now. "'By dint of entreaties expressed in energetic whispers, "'I reduced the half-dozen to two. "'These, however, he vowed he would select himself. "'With anxiety, I watched his eye rove over the gay stores.' He fixed on a rich silk of the most brilliant amethyst dye, 
and a superb pink satin. I told him, in a new series of whispers, that he might as well buy me a gold gown and a silver bonnet at once. I should certainly never venture to wear his choice. With infinite difficulty, for he was stubborn as a stone, I persuaded him to make an exchange in favor of a sober black satin and pearl-gray silk. It might pass for the present, he said, but he would yet see me glittering like a parterre. Glad was I to get him out of the silk warehouse, and then out of a jeweler's shop. The more he bought me, the more my cheek burned with a sense of annoyance and degradation. As we re-entered the carriage, and I sat back feverish and fagged, I remembered what, in the hurry of events, dark and bright, I had wholly forgotten. The letter of my uncle, John Eyre, to Mrs. Reed, his intention to adopt me and make me his legacy. It would indeed be a relief, I thought, if I had ever so small an independency. I never can bear being dressed like a doll by Mr. Rochester, or sitting with the golden shower falling daily round me. I will write to Madeira the moment I get home, and tell my Uncle John I am going to be married, and to whom. If I had but a prospect of one day bringing Mr. Rochester an ascension of fortune, I could better endure to be kept by him now. And, somewhat relieved by this idea, which I failed not to execute that day, I ventured once more to meet my master's and lover's eye, which most pertinaciously sought mine. Though I averted both face and gaze, he smiled, and I thought his smile was such as a sultan might, in a blissful and fond moment, bestow on a slave his golden gems had enriched. I crushed his hand, which was ever hunting mine, vigorously, and thrust it back to him, red with the passionate pressure. "'You need not look in that way,' I said. "'If you do, I'll wear nothing but my old low-wood frocks to the end of the chapter. "'I'll be married in this lilac gingham. "'You may make a dressing-gown for yourself out of the pearl-gray silk "'and an infinite series of waistcoats out of the black satin.' "'He chuckled. He rubbed his hands. "'Oh, it is rich to see and hear her,' he exclaimed. "'Is she original?' Is she piquant? Why, Jane, what would you have? I fear you will compel me to go through a private marriage ceremony, besides that performed at the altar. You will stipulate, I see, for peculiar terms. What will they be? I only want an easy mind, sir, not crushed by crowded obligations. Do you remember what you said of Celine Varennes, of the diamonds, the cashmeres you gave her? I will not be your English Celine Varennes, I shall continue to act as Adele's governess. By that, I shall earn my board and lodging, and thirty pounds a year besides. I'll furnish my own wardrobe out of that money, and you shall give me nothing but... Well, but what? Your regard, and if I give you mine in return, that debt will be quit. Well, for cool native impotence and pure innate pride, you have in your equal, said he. We are now approaching Thornfield... "'Will it please you to dine with me today?' he asked as we re-entered the gates. "'No, thank you, sir. "'And what for no thank you, if one may inquire? "'I never have dined with you, sir, "'and I see no reason why I should now till... "'Till what? "'You delight in half-phrases. "'Till I can't help it. "'Do you suppose I eat like an ogre or a ghoul "'that you dread being the companion of my repast?' I have formed no supposition on the subject, sir, but I want to go on as usual for another month. 
"'you will give up your governessing slavery at once. "'Indeed, begging your pardon, sir, I shall not. "'I shall just go on with it as usual. "'I shall keep out of your way all day, "'as I have been accustomed to do. "'You may send for me in the evening "'when you feel disposed to see me, "'and I'll come then, but at no other time.' I want a smoke, Jane, or a pinch of snuff to comfort me under all this, and unfortunately I have neither my cigar case nor my snuff box. But listen, whisper. It is your time now, little tyrant, but it will be mine presently, and once I have fairly seized you to have and to hold, I'll just, figuratively speaking, attach you to a chain like this, touching his watch guard. Yes, bonny wee thing, I'll wear you in my bosom, lest my jewel I should tine. He said this as he helped me to alight from the carriage, and while he afterwards lifted out Adele, I entered the house and made good my retreat upstairs. He duly summoned me to his presence in the evening. I had prepared an occupation for him, for I was determined not to spend the whole time in a tete-a-tete conversation. I remembered his fine voice. I knew he liked to sing, "'Good singers generally do. "'I was no vocalist myself, "'and in his fastidious judgment "'no musician either. "'But I delighted in listening "'when the performance was good. "'No sooner had twilight, "'that hour of romance, "'began to lower her blue "'and starry banner over the lattice, "'than I rose, "'opened the piano, "'and entreated him, "'for the love of heaven, "'to give me a song. "'He said I was a capricious witch.' "'and that he would rather sing another time. "'But I averred that no other time was like the present. "'Did I like his voice?' he asked. "'Very much. "'I was not fond of pampering that susceptible vanity of his, "'but for once, and from motives of expediency, "'I would soothe and stimulate it. "'Then, Jane, you must play the accompaniment. "'Very well, sir, I will try.' I did try, but was presently swept off the stool and denominated a little bungler, being pushed unceremoniously to one side, which was precisely what I wished. He usurped my place and proceeded to accompany himself, for he could play as well as sing. I hied me to the window recess, and while I sat there and looked out on the still trees and dim lawn, to a sweet air was sung in mellow tones the following strain. The truest love that ever heart felt at its kindled core did through each vein in quickened start the tide of being poor. Her coming was my hope each day, her parting was my pain. The chance that did her steps delay was ice in every vein. I dreamed it would be nameless bliss as I loved, loved to be, and to this object did I press as blind as eagerly. But wide as pathless was the space that lay our lives between, and dangerous as the foamy race of ocean surges green, and haunted as a robber path through wilderness or wood, for might and right and woe and wrath between our spirits stood. I dangers dared, I hindrance scorned, I omens did defy. Whatever menaced, harassed, warned, I passed impetuous by. On sped by rainbow fast as light, I flew as in a dream, for glorious rose upon my sight, that child of shower and gleam. Still bright on clouds of suffering dim shines that soft, solemn joy, 
nor care I now how dense and grim disasters gather nigh. I care not in this moment sweet, though all I have rushed o'er, should come on pinion strong and fleet, proclaiming vengeance sore. Though haughty hate should strike me down, right bar approach to me, and grinding might with furious frown swear endless enmity. My love has placed her little hand with noble faith in mine, and vowed that wedlock's sacred band our nature shall entwine. My love has sworn with sealing kiss with me to live to die. I have at last my nameless bliss, as I love, loved am I. He rose and came towards me, and I saw his face all kindled, and his full falcon eye flashing, and tenderness and passion in every lineament. I quailed momentarily, then I rallied. Soft scene, daring demonstration, I would not have, and I stood in peril of both. A weapon of defense must be prepared. I wetted my tongue as he reached me. I asked with asperity whom he was going to marry now. That was a strange question to be put by his darling Jane. Indeed, I considered it a very natural and necessary one. He had talked of his future wife dying with him. What did he mean by such a pagan idea? I had no intention of dying with him. He might depend on that. Oh, all he longed, all he prayed for, was that I might live with him. Death was not for such as I. Indeed it was. I had as good a right to die when my time came as he had, but I should bide that time and not be hurried away in a settee. Would I forgive him for the selfish idea and prove my pardon by reconciling kiss? No, I would rather be excused. Here I heard myself apostrophized as a hard little thing, and it was added any other woman would have been melted to marrow at hearing such stanzas crooned in her praise. I assured him I was naturally hard, very flinty, and that he would often find me so, and that, moreover, I was determined to show him divers' rugged points in my character before the ensuing four weeks elapsed. He should know fully what sort of a bargain he had made, while there was yet time to rescind it. Would I be quiet and talk rationally? I would be quiet if he liked, and as to talking rationally, I flattered myself I was doing that now. He fretted, pished, and pshawed. Very good, I thought. You may fume and fidget as you please, but this is the best plan to pursue with you, I am certain. I like you more than I can say, but I'll not sink to a bathos of sentiment, and with this needle of repartee I'll keep you from the edge of the gulf too, and moreover maintain by its pungent aid that distance between you and myself most conducive to our real mutual advantage. From less to more I worked him up to considerable irritation. Then, after he had retired quite to the other end of the room, I got up and saying, I wish you good night, sir, in my natural and wanted respectful manner, I slipped out by the side door and got away. The system thus entered on I pursued during the whole season of probation, and with the best success. He was kept, to be sure, rather cross and crusty, but on the whole I could see he was excellently entertained, and that a lamb-like submission and turtle-dove sensibility, while fostering his despotism more, would have pleased his judgment, satisfied his common sense, and even suited his taste less. In other people's presence I was, as formerly, deferential and quiet, 
any other line of conduct being uncalled for. It was only in the evening conferences I thus thwarted and afflicted him. He continued to send for me punctually the moment the clock struck seven, though when I appeared before him now he had no such honeyed terms as love and darling on his lips. The best words at my service were provoking puppet, malicious elf, sprite, changeling, etc. For caresses, too, I now got on grimaces, for a pressure of the hand, a pinch on the arm, for a kiss on the cheek, a severe tweak of the ear. It was all right. At present I decidedly preferred these fierce favors to anything more tender. Mrs. Fairfax, I saw, approved me. Her anxiety on my account vanished. Therefore I was certain I did well. Meantime, Mr. Rochester affirmed I was wearing him to skin and bone, and threatened awful vengeance for my present conduct at some period fast coming. I laughed in my sleeve at his menaces. I can keep you in reasonable check now, I reflected, and I don't doubt to be able to do it hereafter. If one expedient loses its virtue, another must be devised. Yet, after all, my task was not an easy one. Often I would rather have pleased than teased him. My future husband was becoming to me my whole world, and more than the world, almost my hope of heaven. He stood between me and every thought of religion, as an eclipse intervenes between man and the broad sun. I could not in those days see God for his creature, of whom I had made an idol. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.